Turn your Bibles, please, to Isaiah 41. How can you not be in Isaiah <laughs> at this time? Isaiah, and we're going to look at a verse that Marlon read. He just told me that he didn't realize I was preaching on Isaiah 41.10. But uh, it's been on his heart all week long, as it has been on mine. But Isaiah 41.10 reads like this. Listen to these words. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to this text today, and we consider the things that are going on in the world, it's appropriate. We don't know where things are going in the world, but it doesn't look hopeful. (laughs) But we have the eternal hope, Yahweh, who has said he will never leave us or forsake us. And for that, we are most grateful and encouraged and hopeful, but only in Christ, not in man. Take these words today and drive them into our hearts, challenge us, comfort us, and encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we can bathe in the luxuriant light of such a promise as we just read in 4110, We need to have some biblical background on the prophets, right? The prophets in the English Bible are divided up into the major prophets and the minor prophets, but it has nothing to do with the importance of what they were writing about. Like the major prophets weren't writing about something more important than the minor prophets. It has everything to do with the length of the books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, with Lamentations, Ezekiel and Daniel are grouped together as major prophets in our English Bible. I'd like you to consider the following facts regarding these prophets and the books that they wrote. Isaiah was written 100 years before the Babylonian captivity. These are very important facts. And it stresses divine government all the way to the millennial kingdom. Written 100 years before the Babylonian exile, he wrote to the same people as the other prophets. He ministered in the southern part of the divided kingdom of Judah. You do realize that after Solomon, the kingdom divided into two kingdoms. And in the south was Judah and the beautiful city of God, Jerusalem. And to the north was what they referred to as Israel, and the capital city there was Samaria. So at the time of Isaiah, all seemed like it was going along well, at least to the people. The people felt good about themselves and their situation. But Isaiah, through God, saw things very differently. And while the people were saying, peace, peace, when they were facing terrible future, they did not change, Isaiah warned the Jewish people to repent, to repent. Isaiah brought the message that the people needed to worship God in truth and not just go through the motions or terrible things would befall them, i.e., the Babylonian captivity, which came to pass because they did not repent. Jeremiah, on the other hand, wrote right before the captivity, and he stressed practices harmonious with divine government. He came after Isaiah's time and during the last days of Judah's history, the southern kingdom. And during the reign of the last five kings of Judah, Jeremiah saw the potential for exile and Babylonian captivity as imminent. He knew it was coming. He could tell by the lackadaisical response of the people toward God. Everything that Isaiah prophesied was coming to fruition during Jeremiah's time. In Lamentations 4, Jeremiah records the invasion of Jerusalem. 
It was a century after Isaiah, excuse me, after Israel was carried away by the Assyrians, the Babylonians were surrounding the holy city Jerusalem under King Nebuchadnezzar. And in a moving eyewitness account of the fall of Jerusalem, Jeremiah describes the horrible sufferings and devastation in Judah during that time. I want to read just a portion to you from Lamentations chapter 4. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. And those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Speaking of the children of Israel, living in all the the glorious blessings of God. And now their face is blacker than soot. And they are not recognized in the streets. And their skin has shriveled on their bones. And it has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. Lamentations 4, 4 through 11. Those are God's people, people. Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet during the captivity. He wrote during the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, and he stressed the person of divine government, the king. Now, all of these prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and into Daniel, all of them gave hope to God's people that what they were experiencing in the Babylonian captivity was not the end, though it was brutal. It was not the end. Ezekiel prophesied to a group of exiles right in Babylon, and his message was more hopeful than the other prophets in that the hammer had already fallen, and Israel was captive in Babylon. And toward the latter chapters in Ezekiel, he prophesied about the glories of a coming kingdom, the kingdom that Messiah would reign over. We know it as the millennial kingdom. Isaiah also talked about the millennial kingdom in chapters 40 through 66. Finally, Daniel, also writing during the captivity and up to its end, explained that divine government will be personal, perpetual, forever. I love the book of Daniel. You can go on our website and listen to sermons that I preached on the book of Daniel. I was doing it in the evenings, as in the morning I was preaching through Revelation. That's also online. I just love those books. Both of them, they fit hand and glove together. This prophet, Daniel, was unique among the others in that Daniel, although he prophesied during the captivity, like Ezekiel, he prophesied as a great leader in pagan Babylon. (laughs) He wasn't a captive, so to speak, or not treated like a captive, He was one among the many, and he is like a bright shining star in the midst of a dark and crooked generation. I love the book of Daniel. Daniel shines through three pagan regimes. What a hero. He tells of the four great kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And Daniel's lifetime spanned two of these great civilizations, Babylonia and Medo-Persian empires. Daniel was still around when Cyrus ruled Medo-Persia. 
and he saw the Jews released from captivity. Remember, Daniel was brought into captivity at the beginning, and he saw the end of captivity. And because even in the midst of terrible and dark days, when Israel was under the mighty hand of God, exiled from their homeland, captive in a foreign and pagan land, God had gone before them and established Daniel, a choice servant of the Most High God, right in the midst of pagan society. Now when I think of the book of Daniel, and Daniel as a man, and of all of his prophecies, I think of only one word, epic. It is epic, a phenomenal book. Now returning to our text in Isaiah 41.10. This was written after the northern kingdom, Israel, the city of Samaria, had fallen to the Assyrians. So the southern kingdom saw that. They knew that. And Isaiah warned the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem that they would face a similar fate if they would not repent. And in chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah, there's much about judgment on the northern kingdom, Israel. He mentions it many times and predicts that something similar would happen to the southern kingdom if they would not repent. In Isaiah 39, 5 through 7, let's just turn back a couple pages because I'm sure you're in Isaiah 41. Isaiah 39... And verses 5 through 7 tell us very clearly, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says Yahweh. And some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. This is before it happened, okay? 100 years before it happened. And then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For Hezekiah thought in his heart, For there will be peace and truth in my days. Complacency. Affluence. Hezekiah didn't even care what was going to happen in the future. He was just happy it wasn't going to happen on his watch. Lord, help us. Isaiah begins an entirely new section in the book of Isaiah in chapter 40. And it goes all the way through to the end, chapter 66. And look at 41, chapter 41, verse 1. Excuse me, chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's very interesting. How can Isaiah say this if they had not even gone into captivity yet? Captivity is still 100 years forward in the future, and Isaiah is writing this. Because he's speaking proliptically. That's a big word. It means comes from prolipsis, which means it's a representation of a thing as existing before it actually takes place. And prophecies are filled with that. Prophecies in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, God speaks as assured that the thing has happened even though it hasn't happened yet. Just a testimony to who God is. And prolipsis is often at play in biblical prophecy. God is sovereign and beyond the constraints that hinder us, and he sees what future, what is future to us as having taken place already. 
And he's providing comfort. Listen to this, people. In verse 40, or chapter 40, verse 1, he's providing comfort 100 years in advance of them experiencing the suffering where they will need that comfort. That's Yahweh. That's the God that we worship. That's the God who created the heavens and the earth and knows the beginning from the end. It's just amazing. We know that his people were aware of the prophets and the books that were written because Daniel, one of those carried off into captivity and who weathered three regimes of ungodly and wicked world leaders, as time, at the time of captivity, as it drew to a close, he literally turned to Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12 and read that Jeremiah said, you will be in captivity for 70 years. And Daniel went, one, two, three, four, all the way up to 69 and a half or whatever. And he said, hey, it's almost over. Our 70 years is almost up. Because he believed God's word. He believed the prophets that prophesied. He determined Time of captivity was at its end. Even back in 2 Chronicles 36, 21, God predicted that Israel would be in exile for 70 years. 2 Chronicles 36, 21. He was already telling them, you're going to suffer for 70 years in captivity and be in exile. And the reason was because of the Sabbath rest that Israel had ignored for so many years. That's a whole other topic. I'm not going to get into it, but... This is important truth. So when we look at it, Isaiah 41.10, we are seeing Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, assuring them that though they will be exiled for 70 years and the glorious capital city of Judah, Jerusalem, will be completely destroyed, it is not the end. He's not through with his people. He promises that he would deliver them again, and I'd like to consider his words of comfort and what they might mean to us today. The title of the message is The Specter of Fear. Fear. It's a powerful, powerful emotion. The whole idea of fear the kind of fear that Israel experienced in the face of suffering, the kind of fear that our brothers and sisters and even those who are not our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan are facing today as I'm speaking. It's becoming more and more feasible in our lifetime, isn't it? That kind of soul-gripping fear. You see, we're being fed a constant diet of fear, one writer states, Fear of terrorists, fear of illegal immigrants, fear of people who are too religious, fear of people who are not religious enough, fear of Muslims, fear of extremists, fear of the government, fear of those who fear the government, and the list goes on and on. I didn't even mention the plague, right? <laughs> or so-called. Fear prevents us from thinking. The emotional panic that accompanies fear shuts down the frontal, prefrontal cortex or the rational thinking part of our brains. In other words, when we are consumed by fear, people, we stop thinking. And if you've ever been really afraid, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> I, I've had that experience a number of times in my life. It's not fun, right? Fear has been a critical tool in past fascist regimes. And it now operates in our contemporary world, all of which raises fundamental questions about us as human beings. Listen to me, because this is a question for us as Christians. What will we give up in order to perpetuate the illusion of safety and security? What will we give up to perpetuate the illusion of safety and security? Now, that was written by John Whitehead, December 27, 2015, well before the things that we're experiencing today. He already saw it happening. Others were way before him. I want to talk to you today just a little bit. I mean, this is launching a series of sermons on fear. And as I began to dig down and start 
looking into this topic, I recognize this is going to be more than one week. So bear with me as I play this out and travel along with me on my journey through God's Word. There are three categories of fear. Three categories of fear. And I think this would sum them. All fear falls into one of these three categories. First, there's natural fear, okay? Natural fear. Now, this is a fear all of us have experienced where there's an agitation of the mind due to a sense of approaching evil or danger. 1 John 4.18 tells us that there is torment in fear. That's a strong word. But in natural fear, when evil's coming upon you or you're fearful that something is going to befall you that you really can't escape, um, it's, it, it torments you. It's not always sinful. Listen to me. Fear is not always sinful. Natural fear is experienced by believers and non-believers alike. It's kind of a natural thing. And it's not always sinful, but it is always the fruit and consequence of sin. I can say that and take it to the bank. Fear is always the fruit and consequence of sin. What was the origin of fear, people? Think of the origin of fear. It's been with us ever since Adam in the garden, hasn't it? After eating of the tree that had been forbidden to him by God, we read Adam was among the trees of the garden hiding from God after he ate of the fruit. In Genesis 3.10, Adam answers God as to why he had hidden himself from him, saying, I was afraid. It's the first instance of fear. Even our Lord in his humanity, facing his impending time on the cross, experienced fear, yet without sin. But he experienced fear because it is a human experience. And he was the God-man. 100% God, 100% human. We read, and he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be very distressed and troubled in the Garden of Gethsemane. Distressed and troubled. The word distressed means to become alarmed, struck with terror, and troubled means to be literally filled with anguish. That was our Savior as he contemplated the cross. And yet he prayed, not my will, but thy will be done, right? Natural fear is part of the human experience, and it comes because of the fall. Often when faced with impending circumstances, the sense is, I don't know what to do. I don't know which way to go. Evil is the object of fear. And death is the greatest of all evils. Job referred to death as the king of terrors. The king of terrors. Now I read of how individual temperaments come into play with fear, human fear, natural fear. And I love this because it's got two of my heroes in it, Luther, Melanchthon. Martin Luther was like a lion in temperament. He he was really courageous, right? He went against the Pope, right? The Papists. And his his friend, Melanchthon, incidentally, Melanchthon was the first one to ever put together a systematic theology, okay? A lot of good stuff came from that era. And Melanchthon wasn't like Luther. Luther, writing to his fellow collaborator, Melanchthon, said this, quote, I am secure. I am a secure spectator of things. I do not fear anything, those fierce and threatening papists say. I dislike those anxious cares which you write almost consume you. Two men, godly, godly men, standing against the papists and the Roman church in all of their air. And one is as bold as a lion, and Melanchthon, he says, is filled with anxious cares that almost consume him. Beloved, I look out on our our flock, we got both. 
We got people that are saying, bring it! <laughs> you know, they're ready. They're ready to go. And then we got other people going, what's going on? What's happening out here? Is everything going to change? Okay? It, it's just personality type, okay? We need to love the lions because they're going to lead the fray. And we need to love the timid as well and encourage them. They're not sinning. That's just where they're at. Now, it can become sinful, and we're going to look at that right now. Sinful fear. That's the second type. There's natural fear, just the natural personalities. Some are less prone to it. Others are very prone to it. But there's sinful fear. Now, we can see sinful fear displayed in at least five ways. Sinful fear is unbelief and a refusal to trust God. That's sinful fear. And I think the best illustration of this that I can think of of the scripture that's very, very poignant is uh, Kadesh Barnea. When Israel gets up to the gateway into the promised land that God had promised them, he told them, go in and take the land. But they sent spies in, didn't they? And 10 came back and they said, oh, the land is a land that devours its inhabitants, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. Today's terminology would be, we seemed like snowflakes. Okay? And yet Caleb and another said, let's go for it. We can take it. Let's go. Now, fearing for their lives, supposedly, God's people drew back. They refused to take the land that God had given to them. But their fear and their self-protection only masked defiant unbelief. God said, go in, I'm with you. I have given the land into your hand. Go take it. And you know what they said? They said, we're afraid that, that we and our children will die. And so they refused to take the land. They hid behind fear, but it really was defiant unbelief. So sinful fear. Now Judah was threatened by Sennacherib of the Assyrians, and they wanted to make an alliance with Egypt. The, the God's people did. But God through Isaiah told them, no, in returning and rest, you will be saved in quietness and confidence, it will be your strength. But you would not. That's defiance. That's sinful fear, people. Find that in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. Sinful fear, listen to this, turns the creature, turns to the creature rather than the creator when afraid. Sinful fear turns to the creature rather than the creator when it is afraid. Sinful fear is unreasonable. That's another characteristic of it. Sinful fear goes beyond the cause of fear. Everything is frightening. When you're in this state and in sin, a twig breaking jars you, startles you. Not just the virus, but the surfaces that carry it and other people, right? It slays me, and I, I have to confess to you, pray for your pastor, because I get personally offended when I'm walking down an aisle in Target and I don't have a mask on. Now, now, today, okay? Not during the height of everything. Now, and the person is coming down the aisle towards me. He's got a mask on, and he goes up against it like this to get away from me. I get personally offended like I, there's just something in my sinful ego that just wants to go, what's wrong with you? <laughs> pray for me. Okay, I have a new sanctifying situation on hand. Usually you pray for my driving skills. So here's another one you can add. I, I'm human, man. I'm human. Pray for me. That is sinful fear. It's unreasonable. It's beyond the pale. Isaiah described Israel when they heard of the Assyrian alliance against them and says their hearts were moved like the trees in a forest are blown every which way by the wind, Isaiah 7, 2. 
That's unreasonable, folks. The fear just blows them back and forth. They're, they're blown every which way. And Jacob, upon meeting Esau, we are told, was greatly afraid and distressed. Jacob, when meeting Esau, was greatly afraid and distressed. Never mind that two verses before we read that, we, f- we see that God had met with Jacob and he was granted by God as his escort angels. Angels that were going to be with him because God knew he was afraid and he was still afraid. It's unreasonable. Totally unreasonable. You can see that in Genesis 32, 1 through 8 when Jacob goes to meet Esau's brother, right? Sends the women and children first. Oh, my, 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 my. Another characteristic, sinful fear is not only unreasonable, and sinful fear is not only unbelief and a refusal to trust God. Sinful fear magnifies what is not true. (laughs) It magnifies what's not true. In the context of the verse that we are considering, Isaiah 41.10, Israel was putting their hopes in Egypt, as though their horses and army were greater than Yahweh. And that's not true. And they had elevated Egypt above God, to which God simply reminded them, now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. Isaiah 31, 3. They were magnifying what is not true. Don't ever give anything your trust and dependence that is due only to God, your creator. Oh, people, listen to me today. Don't give anything your trust and dependence that is due only to God, your creator. We hear a lot about science today. Really? Is science greater than God? That would be to magnify something that is just not true. As to making people greater than God, and I'm not against science, real science. I'm against what's pseudoscience, what's being promoted. Let me get that straight. So making people greater than God, Jesus told his disciples, don't fear them who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Now that is a hard saying, isn't it? Who's he saying that to his disciples? Okay, and he's going to be crucified, and he knew that. And he's telling them, hey, listen, don't worry about those people taking your body. (laughs) Body's just a tent. They can't touch your soul. You're good. (laughs) Yeah, the terror... The king of terrors kind of grips our hearts when we start thinking about death, don't we? Remember Isaiah 51, 12 through 13, he says, I, even I, Yahweh, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? I love it. Who are you who are afraid of man who dies and of the son of man who's made like grass? that you have forgotten Yahweh, your maker. Don't make people bigger than God. People are not bigger than God. That's not true. Don't magnify that. Another characteristic, sinful fear distracts from spiritual duties. You can be so caught up in your fear that you let go of the things that you should do and you know you should be doing. Daily devotions, personal times of prayer, ministering to other people, coming to church. Oh, I'm getting serious now. I better stop that. Sinful fear usurps the soul's ability to rest in God. It becomes an all-encompassing force of distraction, causing the mind to focus only on the object of fear. In doing so, the soul cannot find rest or comfort, and is unable to be composed before the Lord. No rest. Agitated. Very much unlike Daniel. When that frightful word came to Daniel of the edict to cast anyone who prayed to any god 
or man other than the king, or they'd be thrown in a fiery furnace, what did Daniel do? Well, we're told in God's word, in Daniel 6.10, it says this. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, okay, the mandate went out, he entered his house, now, this is a parenthesis, now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. So he entered his house, went up to his roof, where the windows were open to Jerusalem, where God and everybody could see him, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Daniel wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid to be thrown into a fiery furnace. Why? Because he wasn't given to sinful fear. He wasn't distracted from his spiritual duties. I, I never forget what St. Francis of Assisi said, and I like this. He was, he was pulling the weeds in his garden, and somebody came by, and they just were testing him, and they said, Francis, what would you do if you knew that God was coming back tomorrow, that the Lord was returning tomorrow? And you know what he said? I'd finish weeding my garden. He understood. Do we? So amazing. Daniel wasn't afraid, and therefore he remained undistracted from his spiritual duties before God. You know, sometimes I think about that when I turn on a news broadcast or I start reading a news broadcast in the middle of the day, take a break from my studies, and I think, why am I doing this? This is really distracting. Now I'm going to be thinking of all that stuff that I just saw. Now I don't think we should be you know, ostriches with our heads in the sand, not knowing what's going on in the world around us, but there's a difference between keeping up with what's going on and being involved and distracted by those things. Be careful, people. Another characteristic, sinful fear forces people into more sin. Sinful fear brings about more sin. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man brings a snare. Now it was but a moment after Adam confessed to be afraid that he indicted God's goodness by scapegoating his wife to God. Right? Just a moment. I'm afraid because I was naked. Oh, that wasn't true either. He was, he was magnifying something that wasn't true. He had fig leaves on. He was not naked. He still felt naked, right? So, I mean, he was definitely deep into sinful fear. And then... God asked him, did you eat from the tree that I forbade you to eat from? And he said, that woman that you gave me. That was his answer, people. That is not only scapegoating the woman, that is indicting God for giving her to him. The one he said, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Wow. His fear drove him to more sin, didn't it? Fear is what drove both Abraham and then his son Jacob to lie about their wives, saying they were his sisters. They were afraid what would happen if they said they were their wives. Sinful sin drives people to more sin, and they attempt to find a way out of their sinfulness. So those are the characteristics of sinful fear. So we've looked at two of the three categories of fear. There's natural fear and sinful fear. And now for the final category, which I'll only touch on today, but revisit later for sure, religious fear. This fear takes the natural passions of fear and tames it and subdues it to the love of God. It is therefore represented as the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. And we're told that it is the beginning of wisdom. So, the fear of God takes the other fears and subdues them under its mighty power. It's a gift of God. The fear of God in the heart of man is a gift of God to the soul that humbles itself before his majesty and recognizes his supremacy. This divine infused attitude of heart is part of the new covenant promise. For in Jeremiah 32, 39 through 40, we read, 
God speaking here, and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always. For their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put my fear, I will put the fear of me in their hearts. It's derived from God. It's not something we gin up in our own strength. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. This is the religious fear. The soul that fears God is a soul that submits itself wholly to God. Those who understand the lordship of Christ over their lives fear the Lord. They fear the Lord. Now, the most common interpretation of fear is reverential respect, right? But I think there needs to be a little bit of honest fear, natural fear as well, because God could just stomp us out if he so chose. Look what he did to his own people to chastise them people. So, yeah, reverential fear, but also fear that trembles before a mighty God because we're just flesh. We're like dust. And I more than once have prayed, oh God, see me as dust. Don't blow. Please don't blow on me. The Bible's full of commands to fear the Lord. Some have counted 365 instances, one for every day. I don't know. I haven't done that. And there are manifold benefits with this religious fear. Uh, Listen to these benefits. It is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1.7, whereby the scales fall from the eyes and the understanding of God and his ways are revealed. Obviously regenerate are the ones who experience fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1.7. It's the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10, which is the proper use of knowledge. Wisdom is taking what God has revealed to us and applying it to the situations and difficulties that we face on planet Earth. So it's the beginning of knowledge, it's the beginning of wisdom. And then we respond in a God-ordered way. Thirdly, the fear of God or the fear of the Lord will prevent sin in our life. Exodus 20, 20, where Moses told the people that your fear of him will keep you from sinning. I like that. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way, right? Cleanse his heart. Psalm 119, 9 and 10. His loving kindness, which is from everlasting to everlasting, is gifted to those who fear him. Psalm 103, 17. That loyal love is granted to those who fear him. Another one. It is the origin of life, a fountain of life, according to Proverbs 14, 27. And it prolongs and sustains life, according to Proverbs 10, 27. It's all wrapped up in life. Regenerate. Okay? Another one is the fear of the Lord brings strong confidence. You feel insecure, a lack of confidence. Maybe you're not fearing God enough. Maybe you don't know him well enough. Because it provides not only confidence and strong confidence for you, but it provides a refuge for your children as well. Proverbs 14, 26. These are all benefits for fearing God. And there are many benefits more that we could look at, and we probably will through this series. But suffice it to say, religious fear is the kind of fear that we should all desire and cultivate. And the way that we cultivate it is by coming to know God in a deeper and deeper way. Now, how do we grapple with the fear that grips our souls sometimes and and not the fear of the Lord the fear of man and the fear of circumstances all around us like we're all facing. Not the degree yet that the Afghanis are facing. But don't you for a second think that it couldn't happen here. Not for a second, people. What do we do with that when, when that kind of natural fear 
takes hold of us and maybe turns into sinful fear. What do we do when fear overwhelms us? Well, Isaiah 41.10 provides us with that wonderful help. And that has to be the longest introduction I have ever done. (laughs) Ever. But the first thing I want to say is the presence of God. The presence of God. If you look at Isaiah 41.10, it says so clearly, Do not fear, for I am with you. Yahweh's promised his presence to his people. It has nothing to do with positive thinking. It doesn't consist of dispelling negative thoughts like whistling in the dark as you're going past a cemetery. It's, it's not, no mind game here at all. Rather, through the use of two concise casual clauses, key in the Hebrew, for in our English Bible, there's two of them there, God tells Israel they can take courage and dispel their fear because he is their God and he is with them. And beloved, I can tell you that Jesus told us, I am with you. Until the end of the age, lo, I am with you. And in Hebrews, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. No, never, no, never, no, never. The triple negative. In context, the outward circumstances are dire. The people of God are listening to Isaiah talk about the Babylonian captivity. The people in Judah have seen the Assyrians take their brothers in the northern kingdom into captivity. Now Isaiah is telling them that they, the southern kingdom, would be overrun by a foreign nation and brought into captivity. And this brought incredible fear into the hearts of the people. Both at the time that Isaiah prophesied it and 100 years later when they actually went through it. Ostensibly, Isaiah's words were proleptically for the captives once Babylon subjugated them a hundred years future. But they had a meaning to God's people at the time of Isaiah's prophecy who lived in the constant fear of the Assyrians. But his words in 41.10 are really intended for the future captives. And he forcefully reminds them that their hope is in the presence of God with them. Look at the following verses and and comfort your own heart when you face fear. And you might want to circle these or or underline them because they're in close proximity to 41.10. In 41 verse 13, we read, For I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand. Uh, The ESV, I think, says, hold your hand. Who holds your hand? I love Indonesian culture where men and women walk hand in hand. Okay? A little bit weird when you first get there and a guy grabs your hand and holds it while you're walking, but after a while you come to like it. Asian culture is wonderful. They like being close to each other. And holding a hand with someone else is very comforting. And here God says that He will hold your hand. I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I'll help you. You know, many are calling on the President of the United States to help them. And that may go unheeded. But God will never fail. Never. Do not fear, verse 14, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. Now, worm is just a a way of saying you're so weak as a man. Okay, you're like a worm. You're just a man, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. That's who's going to enter in and help you in this situation. Turn over to 43. Isaiah 43. Beginning in verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. (laughs) What security? You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they'll not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior 
That's all to help them to understand that He is going to be with them and His presence will protect them. Our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan are passing through the waters, the rivers, and the fire. And we should pray for their deliverance every day, multiple times, for sure. Pray for their safety, and pray for their rescue, absolutely. But we should also pray for their courage and strength to provide a witness, a witness right now as many face death. And many will be martyred. And multitudes more will watch their testimony as they face the ultimate terror, death. And may God give them the grace to stand strong and face their death with God's grace so that those watching will marvel because that's what martyrdom is all about. And it is not the end. It is the beginning of eternal life for those dear brothers and sisters that may be facing death. And we, even as we pray for their strength, pray also for many to come to saving faith through witnessing their testimony. I believe it was the Methodists that say our people die well. I got to see that in Taliavo. A people that was totally afraid of death. They do anything not to die. They're scared to death of death. But when the gospel came and they became believers and in their passing they reached out to their Lord and Savior and they were unafraid. They were unafraid to die. That is the greatest testimony there is against the terror, the king of terrors, death. But God can give that kind of peace and we pray that for our friends in Afghanistan. There's so much more to say about God's presence and the comfort and the empowerment of truly believing the God of creation, that He is present in times of fear, but we're going to have to wait until next week. And we'll continue to break down Isaiah 41.10 and, and see through it that we can face natural fear and even sinful fear head on and overcome it victorious in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you. Oh, words fall far short of the gratitude that we have towards you, God, for revealing these truths to us. And even as Isaiah preached a hundred years before the Israelites actually went through that Babylonian captivity, haven't you told us that you're returning? Yes, it's been 2,000 years, but your word doesn't fail. You're coming, and I believe you're coming very soon. Oh God, may you find us very, very dedicated and fruitful and faithful to you when you come. Thank you for these words of encouragement and challenge, and I pray, God, that you just strengthen our inner person. It's tough times, Lord. Strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.